Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is a kosher conversion by Pastor Sean Wood. Your word, I pray that we would grab a greater glimpse of that magnificence. Help our hearts to see, help our spiritual ears to hear this morning as your word goes forth. In your wonderful name, amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Acts chapter 10. We're going to we finish off uh, the last of looking at three conversions in the book of Acts. Uh, I don't know uh, whether anybody else, I suppose up here it's the Yekka, but in, in Launceston it's like the local show. And uh, I can remember when I was young and I go to the show, uh, one thing I always liked to eat and that I thought you could only get at the show or places like that was a toffee apple. Anybody else ever had a toffee apple? Toffee apples are awesome, right? But really, what's the theology there, right? We take something that nobody likes. We take something that everybody thinks to be like kale, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we we take something that's somewhat unappealing is probably the word to use. And I come from the apple aisle. And we dip it in a whole great big bucket of sugar. And then we take it out and we really only want to eat the sugar, right? Once the toffee's gone, we just chuck the rest. (laughs) My greatest fear is that we live in an age where the aim is that we need to take Jesus, dip him in a bucket of sugar to make him more acceptable, to make him more attractive, to make him more palatable. And today, I hope that by the end of today, we understand that conversion, when the Holy Spirit breathes life upon the human heart, we don't need any toffee because we have a desire inside of our hearts that we learn to love the apple. That's the sign of conversion. The sign of true conversion is when our appetites are changed, when our value systems are so radically transformed that we don't need the toffee. You see, in church life, we don't need to dip Jesus in attractive buildings and and certain programs and flash. We don't need to turn the lights off. We don't need to do those things because we can't make Jesus any more attractive. But the reality is if people will just see Jesus, you won't need the toffee. And I pray and I hope that we don't believe or fall into the trap that, that any kind of outreach or evangelism looks like that we have to make Jesus more acceptable to our culture or to our world. We don't have to. We just have to live and stand and display who Jesus is to our culture. Today, I wonder, as we look look at a a centurion, and I'll I'll explain why this is a kosher conversion as we go on. For the the Jewish people in the room, you'll know what kosher means. But uh, Acts chapter 10, for every person in this room, Acts chapter 10 is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. It's Acts chapter 10, where for the first time the gates and the doors of the kingdom of heaven are flung open, not only to everybody, but to anybody. We're all Gentiles in this room. We don't understand what that means. Back in the first century, uh, we, we think the Tasmanians are the only Gentiles left, but it's, 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 not just, it's not just Tasmanians and New Zealanders. It's South Africans as well. 
But this is really important because in the first century, this was not accepted. We're going to see that today. Uh, Today, not only is God doing an amazing work in the life of a Gentile, he's also doing an amazing radical work in the life of Peter the Apostle. So let's... Today I want to focus from verse 34, but we need to cover a few things off before we get there. We need to ask ourselves a question, who is Cornelius? Because he's one of the main characters in this chapter. And we also need to find out what's going on with Peter. What, what brings Peter to, to Cornelius' house? But let's start with Cornelius. If you've met me at chapter 10 and we're verse 1, it says it's Caesarea. This is not Caesarea Philippi. Uh, that's for next week. Uh, after today, we're going to spend a couple of weeks asking ourselves the question, well, we have a greater understanding of conversion. We have a greater understanding of what that looks like, right? I mean, we've looked at the Ethiopian from a couple of weeks ago and we understand that God runs after the individual, right? That he is chasing after each of our hearts. We see that Philip had a part to play in that, that he came alongside the eunuch, that he, that he came up. He took a man from information to revelation. And we have a lot of people today that have a lot of information, but we need the Holy Spirit to help them get some revelation of who yeah. Jesus is. And then last week we looked at Saul of Tarsus. And I like Saul of Tarsus because we see God's hand at work in salvation. Salvation is God's work. We just partner with him in that. And so last week, who preached the gospel to Saul of Tarsus? Um, 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 Jesus, yeah. Had anybody preached the gospel to Saul of Tarsus, I wonder what would have happened, right? (laughs) So we learned a few things. First thing is God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. Today, we're going to see that we all play a part, we all have a part to play in God's work of conversion. We partner with God in building and extending his kingdom and and over the next few weeks after this, we're going to look at, well, what does that look like for the church and what does that look like for us as individuals? We'll answer those questions as time goes on, but we're at Caesarea, it's not Caesarea Philippi, uh, and there was a man there named Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. But if that wasn't bad enough, he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. (laughs) If you're in charge of the Italians, you've got a problem, right? (laughs) That that was reserved for the really special centurions. Uh, Verse 2, we start to learn a few things about Cornelius. I wonder whether there's Corneliuses today. Uh, Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household. Have a listen to the description of this guy. Uh, He was a devout man. He feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. I'm going to pause there for a moment because in a moment he's going to have a vision and someone's going to say, you need to send for Peter. But I think we live in a culture filled with Corneliuses. Uh, We live in a, in Western culture, we hear a lot of the time I hear this, I go, well, you know, uh, me and the old man upstairs, we're okay. Uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not in jail. I pay my taxes. Uh, you know, I've got my 2.4 children. If you're wondering, Mitchell's my 0.4. But uh, we think we, we've sold to the Australian dream, which is a false dream, by the way. Uh, we've sold the Australian dream where life equals uh, having a family, buying some property, and then what? You can't take it with you, right? For everybody that's worried about real estate at the moment, I've got some really good news for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you. And the rent is free. (laughs) And the Scottish people said amen. 
But the problem we have is we live in a society today that thinks, you know what, we're all good people. That's, that's not the message of the scripture. I'm going to say something now that I'll clarify in a moment. Every single person spiritually is born a leper. I'll clarify that in a moment. That's where we get to the kosher part. But there's an angel that has a message for Cornelius and verse 4 says, and <clears throat> verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and, and he stared at him in terror. That is the scriptural response for anybody who's confronted with the reality of God. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Uh, John the Apostle turned to see the voice that was talking to him and he fell down like a dead man. Any preacher, I don't care what country they come from, that says, you know what, I went to heaven and had a cup of tea with the old man upstairs, probably didn't. This is the response. Because in the moment you become amazingly aware of who God is and amazingly aware of who we are. What is it, Lord, said Cornelius, and he said to him, your prayers, imagine God saying this to us. In fact, I think from the outside looking in, this guy might even put some of us Christians to shame, right? Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God or as a tribute before God. Wow. And the fact that this man is not Jewish, and yet this is the testimony of him, this is astounding. Now send to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. What? Now send for Peter? Why? Because all of your goodness is not enough. Yes, you're good. Yes, you're devout. Yes, you fear God. Yes, you pray. But that's not enough. You need a radical work of the Holy Spirit on the inside. So we're introduced to Cornelius. I, I wonder whether right now we're thinking of Cornelius as maybe you have conversations with Cornelius as I, I go to the gym with people who are Cornelius as we have, we're in, both in church circles and outside of church circles, we have lost the word sin somewhere. You can't have the authentic message of Christ unless the gospel confronts sin in your life. This conversation I had with somebody recently and that conversation was, you know what? Yes, God loves us. Yes, Jesus accepts everybody. Yes, Jesus loves everybody, accepts everybody, tolerates everybody, but he also confronts everybody's sin. Jesus, for those that read the pastor's comments this morning, Jesus, when he was on earth, was the most offensive person on earth. He offended a lot of people. Still does today. The gospel, to people who think they are good, the gospel is offensive. So send for Peter. Why? Because you need what Peter's going to bring. And a couple of weeks ago, we noted that Philip was on his way to Caesarea. So hang on, God, logistics. Why not just use Philip? He's there, right? Why, why send for Peter from all the way to the back of nowhere that he's got to come over here? It's because Peter's one of the most founding fathers of the early church. This message that's about to come through Peter and what God's about to show Peter has to come through Peter. Peter has a vision. I love how God's doing a million things all at once. John Piper says that at any one point in time in your life, God is doing 10,000 things of which you may be aware of three. 
But if right now we get the whole story all in one, but imagine being Cornelius. He's got no idea who Peter is. He's got no idea that God's about to meet Peter. Peter's about to have a vision. He's got no idea what's happened to Cornelius. He's got no idea what's going on, but the God behind the scenes orchestrating everything that's happening. He's the way maker, right? He's the one behind the scenes. He's always working. And I want to encourage you today that you might end up like Peter does. You might find times and seasons in your life where you stand in verse 17 and you're inwardly perplexed. I've had moments in my life where I've gone, Lord, have you been drinking kale again? Anybody else ever reach that place? Only to find out in the future that the whole time God's been working behind the scenes. Ravi Zacharias, and it's a shame that they took his books off the shelf so quickly. Didn't end so well for Ravi, but Ravi speaks about the Grand Weaver. One of the greatest books I've ever read is the book called The Grand Weaver. I would encourage everybody to read it, but Ravi speaks about the tapestry of our lives. And so often, when you're in the Middle East and you're looking at them carving and weaving these massive tapestries, uh, often we can only see from behind. And if you look from behind, all you see is chaotic threads going all over the place. But if you could get a glimpse from the other side, you would see a masterpiece unfolding. That is the story of many of our lives today. Is that often what we're looking at is all the chaotic threads, right? When God's saying, yes, but I'm making a masterpiece. So God's doing that right now. And there's a masterpiece. He's about to throw the doors open. So Peter has a vision, right? And poor old Peter's got a habit of not getting one foot in his mouth. He manages to get both in at the same time. And so he's not going to be fooled again, right? Uh, God shows him a vision of of a big sheet being let down with all of the animals, the unclean animals. Top of the list, cats. And then he hears a voice say something. And for Jewish people, clean and unclean is huge. Let's read what the vision says, and then I'll unpack what I mean by kosher. It says, verse 13, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this was not like the Jews just didn't do this. There, was, there were kosher foods, and there was non-kosher foods. It's in the parable of the prodigal son, when Jesus said that the prodigal son found himself feeding the pigs... Every male in Jerusalem was picking their drawer up off the ground because swine, no, the Jews didn't even touch them because they were an unclean animal. And so God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What's Peter saying? You're not going to get me this time. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean... Do not call common. That's a huge verse. And recently, uh, in my private readings, I've been reading the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus, if you could, if you could pick it up like a sponge and wring it out, you would just be wringing out the blood of Jesus. The whole book of Leviticus is saturated with Christ. But if you read the book of Leviticus, I challenge you to do so and highlight how many times you come across the word clean or unclean. The whole book is filled with it. It's filled with clean animals and unclean animals. Uh, What makes a person clean or unclean? I'm reading the book of Leviticus and I'm thinking, unless these guys sat on a rock and didn't move, surely they made themselves unclean. I mean, it didn't matter what, if you came within, it doesn't matter what it was, you made yourself 
unclean. And then there were certain rituals that you could make yourself clean again. And there was kosher foods and non-kosher foods. There was kosher animals and non-kosher animals. And for the Jews, the Gentiles were non-kosher. They were unclean. And there's a profound chapter in the book of Leviticus which speaks about leprosy. And you see, leprosy is a physical disease. It kind of covers a number of skin diseases. But leprosy is an incurable disease, particularly in ancient times. And leprosy is just like sin. It, it will eventually destroy you. But what it does over a period of time, leprosy desensitizes you. So does sin. And leprosy was incurable. And if you were a leper, you had to live outside the community. And if you approached people in any way, shape or form, you wanted to buy food or anything, you had to ring a bell and shout, unclean, unclean. And what Jesus is saying here, what God is saying here is everything you call unclean, I've made them clean. The reality, Peter, is you're a leper too. Everybody is born with a spiritual condition of leprosy. I love Matthew chapter 8. A bit of a digression. Every healing, every uh, exorcism that happens in the Gospels is actually a deep parable about the Gospel. Let me share one with you. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has just preached the greatest sermon in the world. No need for an uh, altar call. He's done his job. Boom. Walks down the mountain and there's a leper that comes to him. Wow. We read these words and we go, oh yeah, okay. But for a leper to have the, the nous and the courage to approach Jesus, he's not ringing any bells. He just comes to Jesus. What's more profound is Jesus reaches out and touches him. <coughs> What is glorious about this whole transaction is that a leper comes to Christ. That's what the gospel is, right? We come to Christ. This leper comes to Jesus and he says, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. See, no lepers ever in the gospels were ever healed. They were all cleansed. Jesus says, reaches out his hand and says, I will be clean. Now, normally... What would happen is the minute Jesus touches him, Jesus would be made unclean. That's not what happens. What we read is the minute Jesus touches him, he takes away his uncleanness. Friends, we are all born spiritually lepers. We were all non-kosher. Right now... God has said, don't continue to call people unclean. Have a listen to what God says. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Whenever something is repeated three times in Scripture or happens three times, it's an emphasis. It's speaking about an ultimate. It's God is holy, holy, holy. He's the ultimate picture of holiness. Jesus is worthy, worthy, worthy because he is the ultimate one who is worthy of all our praise. And this was three times because God wants to reinforce it. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed about what these things mean, God has spoken to Peter. God has shown him in a vision these things, but he still doesn't know what they mean. 
You know what? There's a truth and a reality here that I want to highlight. God could have just said to Peter, it means this, this and this, right? But what we learn is, and what we learn in the book of Acts, what we learn in the whole record of Scripture, is guidance is more something God does rather than something God gives. That God guides us and he shows us. Peter says later on, God has shown me. Jacob would say that God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. God has led me and guided me. So after this, Peter goes, he still doesn't know what's going on. These men come and they arrive and he goes and he finds himself in the house of Cornelius. Have a listen to what Peter says. Verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. What I love about what's going on here is God is breaking down walls. Now what we see is entrance into the kingdom of God is not about where you were born. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not about who your mum and dad is. Entrance into the kingdom of God, Cornelius, is not about how devout and how religious you may be. And for those that joined us last Sunday night and we had a look at the life of a man by the name of Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a lot like Cornelius. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader. Nicodemus was one of the foremost spiritual authorities at the time. And we read in John chapter 3 that he came to Jesus. Why? Because something's missing. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, (laughs) uh, Rabbi, we know you are a man sent from God because nobody could do the things you're doing unless God was with him. What's Nicodemus saying? I'm the spiritual authority in this place. And I don't have what you have. And for those that have watched The Chosen and the story of Mary Magdalene and and so forth, it's, it's a great picture. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. All of your rules, all of your sacrifices, all of your ordinance and ceremonies, all of the clothes you wear, doesn't matter anymore. You need to be born again. You need to be converted. So what does Peter have to say? God has shown me. And, and Cornelius, what brings us to verse 34 is that Cornelius recounts his story. And, and Peter would say, what am I doing here? Well, overarchingly, here's what Cornelius says. I sent for you, Peter, because God first sent for me. And please don't make the mistake that Cornelius made. And please don't make the mistake that Nicodemus made today where we think that Christianity is a set of doctrines and a set of rules that we take up. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a set of doctrines or theology that we take up. Rather, it is a conversion that takes us up. Verse 34. So Peter did what? Peter finds himself in the the house of the Gentiles. He realised God has shown him right now that, that the doors are wide open for everybody to come into the kingdom. And Peter does something really profound. It says he opened his mouth. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly I understand something now. Now the penny's dropped. Now the revelation has been received. He says, God shows no partiality. 
It doesn't matter what your education status is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter uh, what's happened in your life. It doesn't matter what your history is. We learn that everybody matters to God, right? God doesn't show favoritism to one over the other. We're all in need of grace. We're all lepers in need of cleansing. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable for him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace. Why is the gospel good news of peace? Who's at conflict? God and sin. Let me pause for a moment. Next week when we look at the church's role... When it comes to the gospel and the kingdom of God, the, the church has a very unique role to play. We're going to cover that next week. Our battle is not against human beings. Our, our stance is not against other people. Our stance, our conflict, if you like, our beef is with sin. There is an incompatibility between God and sin. The good news is God has taken the sin away. Amen. That there can be a removal of conflict and we can have a relationship with him because we have peace. How? Through Jesus Christ. You might be sitting here today going, conversion's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a, conversion and salvation is still the greatest miracle that God performs every day. You see... It's true what many people have said, and that is that Jesus never came to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. That's why it's the greatest miracle that happens every day. We want to see people uh, healed and all that. All those things are wonderful, but this is the greatest miracle that happens each and every day. Uh, uh, Jesus said to, to one, remember one said that, I, I want to follow you, Jesus, but just let me go and bury my father. Jesus says something really profound. Go and let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Puts everybody in the same class. Friends, if we think we are going to do God's work without God's power, we are fooling ourselves. We don't have the power to raise the dead. We don't have the power to save anybody. We don't have the power, but we can be vessels of God. And sometimes we over-mystify reaching out. Sometimes we think we need to go to Bible school. We need to get all these degrees. I wonder whether I'll get the wording right. Well, that's quite simple. All Peter does is he is now just going to tell these Gentiles what he has seen, what he has heard, and what he has experienced. That's all we have to do. Peter is not the greatest theologian. If you read his epistles, they're heavily flavoured with Pauline language. He learned a lot from Paul. If you read his epistles, you'll read things like, I bring you this letter by the hand of Silvanus. In other words, I spoke it, but I didn't write it. Peter couldn't write The Gospel of Mark, orated by Peter, written by John Mark. He's not massively educated, praise God. 
But God can still use him and God can still use us. And have a listen to what Peter says. Have a listen to the message that Peter says. And then we're going to finish with how can we partner with this. He says that he is preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What does Peter say? Peter says, and we are witnesses. What's Peter doing? Peter's saying, this is what's happened in my life. Uh, I think there's a place in the church for apologetics. In fact, I think there's a greater place today in the church for apologetics, of course. But the reality is we can debate facts and figures. We can talk evolution. We can talk creation. We can do all of those things. We might be able to debate all of those things. But here's one thing that nobody can debate or take away from you, and that's the personal testimony of what the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ has done in your heart and in your life. Nobody can take that away from you. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. I love verse 40. What a difference three days makes, right? Ever notice how God's timing is not out? Anybody ever noticed how God doesn't have... He doesn't set his clock to Eastern Standard Australian time, apparently. God doesn't seem to move in our circles, right? But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. It's a really important part of this, not to all people, but to, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Why was that so important? After the resurrection, Christianity exploded. Nobody could stop it. The Roman authorities couldn't stop it. They were confronted with people who didn't care about dying. They were confronted with people that said, you know what, we're going to, they couldn't, they they couldn't combat what was going on. Something radical had taken place. And it all came back to the fact that we've seen a man raised from the dead. Many people immediately said these guys had been drinking a little bit too much of the kale tea and were having a hallucination. (laughs) Friends, can I tell you, you don't eat and drink with a hallucination. You also don't eat and drink with a God who is dead. You eat and drink with somebody who is real. He's not abstract. Jesus isn't just a name we find in a book somewhere. He's God. Okay, now we move to our part. Verse 42, and he commanded us to do what? He commanded us to do two things that are written here. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. And those two words are different in the Greek. First thing that God has called us to do is to preach. And all preach means is to proclaim publicly the message. God has called every single one of us. God has given every single one of us a testimony. God, in all of our mess... I know you guys have got it all together, but in all of our mess, right, God's created a message. 
that he has charged us and commanded us to proclaim, which is the truth of the gospel. But he's also asked us to do something else. He has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God. And that word testify can also mean to bear witness. Bear witness has many different meanings, but it basically means to display or to reveal something to be true. We preach with our mouths, we testify with our lives. More about that in a couple of weeks. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness and everyone, what? Everyone who what? Believes. Now the doors of the kingdom of God are flung open to anybody who believes. And for those of us that are walking through the Gospel of John on a Sunday night, that word believe means more than agreeing with facts in our minds. That word believe means to cast the fullness of our our trust and reliance upon a person. You see, conversion is a turning from the world. It's an abandoning of the world, but it's turning to and embracing God. You have to do that every day. I love this. For the Pentecostals in the room this morning, it gets really flavoursome. This doesn't happen commonly in the book of Acts. What's about to happen now doesn't happen commonly. What I'm about to read is exactly why I am OCD about the fact that we need to live, we need to speak the word of God because something happens in conjunction with the word of God. Often my words and actions are separate. Like when I tell my boys, clean your room, an action that follows that is often not, not forthcoming, right? God's word and his power are not separate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did God do? God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be light. And light was. If I'm sitting in the land room and I say, let there be light, I've still got to get up and go over and flick the switch. (laughs) While Peter was still saying these things... While Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell. It's God's work. The Holy Spirit fell on who? All who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, and all the men just took a deep breath, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. I want to pause there for a moment. There are many conservative teachers today, very prominent conservative teachers, that would say that the operation of the Holy Spirit was only for the first fathers and for the apostles. My question to them is, if that's the case, why did it go to the Gentiles? Because each and every one of us need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live the godly life, right? If my life has taught me anything, it's taught me this. If if I don't have the Holy Spirit, I'm nothing. I need the Holy Spirit to daily commune with God. Verse 40, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, praising God. I'll come back to that one in a moment. 
Uh, it's not common. Uh, when Saul received the Holy Spirit, we're not told that he spoke in tongues. Obviously, at some point he does. When the Holy Spirit falls, he doesn't come how we tell him to. He doesn't come in the manner that we tell him to. And what we read in the book of Acts, please hear me when I say this, everything we read in the book of Acts is a description, not a prescription. There's no formula here. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptising these people? This is, this is one of the greatest chapters uh, in the book of Acts. This is great news for everybody here today. I want to encourage you today, for those that are praying for your family members, God has given us scripture. The record of scripture is clear that there are two ways by which we partner with God in the work of conversion. The first one is prayer. And so if you're, if you're thinking of family members today, maybe you're thinking of, of that neighbour, maybe you're thinking of that person you work with, start praying for them. Put them on your prayer list and don't take them off. I am where I am today because a sweet old lady that took me into her home decided I was worth praying for, even though from the outside in my teenage years, it didn't look like anything like this, Right. But she decided, I'm going to continue to pray for that person. And so whether it's a family member, whether it's your children, whether it's a workmate, first thing, pray for them. Why? Because we need God to move. Pray for the Redlands. Why? Because we need God to move. Pray for Brisbane. Why? Because we need God to move. The second thing that God does is he gives us prayer, firstly, and secondly, proclamation. We partner with God in his work of building the kingdom by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. You proclaim that with your words as much as you do your life. And one of the greatest evidences of conversion, uh, and we see this often, uh, we see this with the Ethiopian, he, he went off rejoicing and praising, right? And, and here we see that they were all extolling God. Can I tell you that you will worship what holds ultimate value in your life? And if I can go back to the toffee apple for a moment, you might be sitting here going, I wonder whether I'm saved, I wonder whether I'm converted, I still struggle in some areas. Uh, okay, I own a cat, well, we'll deal with that later, but uh, I drink tea for all the tea drinkers here today. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not saved, it just means God's got an internal work to do. But, <laughs> but the greatest evidence of conversion is what you ultimately value changes. Amen. What these guys ultimately valued radically changed. They're praising God. That's what we do when we worship. When we come together and we worship, we are worshipping and giving praise and exalting the one who has the ultimate value in our lives. My prayer is that God would use me and would use us as a church to shift everything that you value I'm not saying we don't value family. I'm not saying there's no value in those things. I'm just saying God must be the ultimate value in our lives. And the evidence of that, it just bubbles out in praise, right? We live in a world today, we live in a culture today, where people are worshipping their work and worshipping finances and worshipping social standing and many, many other things are the ultimate things in their lives. I pray 
that there would be a conversion maybe. Anybody else ever noticed something about conversion? Conversion has a beginning point, but it doesn't seem to have an end point. In fact, I look back over my life and I'm thinking, God, you've been converting me for a long time. The Bible calls it sanctification, but God is radically shifting stuff and I pray that he would shift the values. I remember, I remember many years ago getting on my knees and praying a prayer that says, God, sanctify yourself in my life as holy. And what that means is, God, I want you to set yourself apart, take yourself from the place of common, Leviticus language right now, take yourself from the place of common to the very special. And I want to tell you, friends, I want to warn you, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Because God will answer it, but it won't look like what you think it looks like. I pray that God would sanctify himself as holy in our lives because if God did that in the life of 120 plus people that are in this room right now, if God did that in your life, Brisbane would look differently. Please remember that there were 120 people gathered in the upper room in the book of Acts. And inside of one generation, the gospel had transformed Asia Minor. We serve an awesome God. We have the best news in the universe. And I want to encourage you not only to speak it, but to live it and see what God does through us. Father, as we pray, Father, I pray that you would use everyone in this room to bear witness and testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. Whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our schools, whether it's when we're at the grocery store. And I pray for a boldness. I pray for a Holy Spirit boldness for every person to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to water it down, but to testify to the wonderful work you have done in our lives. As I stand here, Father, and I'm sure... Many will agree this morning, I am so deeply thankful that you shook my world and that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, converted me. And afresh today, I make a choice to embrace Jesus. I ask today, Father, that you would use this church to extend your kingdom. In your wonderful and glorious name we ask. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.